Welcome to the second season of Reset the Table. Russia's war in Ukraine affects agricultural markets and threatens food security for millions around the world. The UN Food System Summit is behind us, and COP27 and the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health are upon us. Join us as we examine solutions to food insecurity challenges around the world and right here at home. Welcome to the show. My guests today are Joseph Glauber, non-resident senior advisor with the CSIS Global Food Security Program and senior research fellow at IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, and David Laborde, also a senior research fellow at IFPRI. Today, we'll discuss the latest on Russia's war in Ukraine and its implications for global food security. Since the war broke out, Joe and David have performed a very important service by publishing numerous analyses that inform public and political understanding of the ongoing global food security crisis. If you haven't read their work directly, you've likely heard from them or read them referenced in other media. We're very fortunate to have both Joe and David in our studio today. Welcome to the show. So starting out with some background, let's look pre-war. The latest estimate out of the UN is that last year, as many as 828 million people worldwide were undernourished um, due to the effects of COVID and climate change and other factors. Because of the effects of this war, the number of people experiencing acute food insecurity could reach an all-time high this year, as many as 323 million people. Russia has effectively targeted all aspects of Ukraine's agricultural production, from tractors and fields to agricultural research institutes to bridges and ports, which has reduced Ukraine's exports to a fraction of their pre-war volume. While Western nations have exempted and continue to exempt Russia's agriculture sector from sanctions, exports of Russia's agricultural products of their grains and fertilizer have also been affected. And this has increased global prices of commodities, reduced global supplies, and hit food importing countries the worst. I just want to start by level setting. So what does it look like right now? Just what's the global outlook? What supplies, prices of the commodities that are directly implicated by the war? Yes, I, th I think it's important to remember and, and a point that we keep hammering home is that even prior to the invasion, global grain and oilseed supplies were at their tightest level since really the last 10 or 15 years. You'd have to go back to 2007-8 for wheat at a time when we had very, very record high wheat prices, back to 2011-12-13 for maize and soybean market. What had happened is that we saw some climactic issues last year, so poor yields due to droughts and other factors that brought down supplies. We also had a big increase in demand the last couple of years. Some of that's due to coming out of COVID. And because of that, stock levels were drawn down and prices were at the highest level really since 10 or 15 years. So all that was as of February 24th. And I think a lot of analysts at the time expected that with return to bigger harvests, that over time, those prices would come down. And so that people were looking at big producers would be responding by planting more crops, that prices would come down as they normally do. The problem is the invasion exacerbated the situation. Why? Because Russia and Ukraine account for such a large portion of the grain trade. And in the case of vegetable oils, a very large portion of sunflower oil trade. And these are major commodities that if you look at wheat, for example, approximately 10% of the world's exports come from out of Ukraine. Another 20, 23% or so come out of Russia. So when the world saw this war break out, 
there was a lot of concern. Uh, wheat prices went through the roof. We saw what, 50% increase, 50, 60% increases in wheat prices over the first two weeks. They came down a little bit. Also, corn prices followed, vegetable oil prices followed. Again, a lot of factors. Yes, and I will add in combination to what happened on the actual commodity markets. And here we have to think about food and feed. And I think we will revisit this issue because everything is not directly consumed by, by human. We also had a similar dynamic on energy markets and fertilizer markets with rising prices in 2021. So impacting the cost of producing food, but also of transporting food. And here, clearly, Russia is playing a major role in energy markets and in fertilizer markets. And that has been also a combination of this effect that have put pressure on every farmer in the world and at the end, potentially any consumer in the world. So it's not just the prices of the commodities that are exported from Ukraine and Russia that are affected, not just wheat, maize, sunflower oil and fertilizer. But David, you mentioned feed too. So therefore, the price of meat has increased during this crisis. How is this crisis affecting other foodstuffs apart from the ones that are exported from these two countries? The starting point is that really starting last year and with climatic shock, both in North America and in, in Brazil, the soybean market was impacted, the maize market was impacted. So that's really key element of it. And then you have actually Ukraine that are also becoming a major exporter of maize, but also barley. And there are commodities that actually will nourish chicken, pigs. And every time the price of feed is higher, the price of eggs is going to be higher. The price of dairy is going to be higher. And this is also lasting impact, meaning that you don't see the rise of egg on the first day of the crisis, but it's going to continue. And at the end, when all these feedstuffs are impacted, you have less opportunity to shift from one product to another. And as of today, the price of chicken, for example, on the world market has remained high and I've not seen the fast decrease we have seen for other commodities because it will take time. Yeah. And it isn't just that, oh, well, these poultry producers around the world pass on higher costs. What happens is their margins get squeezed. So they have very high input costs. So as a consequence, some don't grow chickens. And so supplies get reduced. That creates high prices in world markets. And remember that in a country like the U.S. or in countries in Europe, the farm value of retail price of food is a very small portion of. In the U.S., it's 15 percent. The rest, all those costs afterwards are all in the processing, transporting, merchandising of all these retail products. That's where things like energy prices also have a very big impact. So all this has had a big impact on inflationary pressures, plus the overall macro economy that we've seen here in the U.S. and in Europe and other places around the world. We have seen a lot of inflationary pressures coming from outside the agricultural sector. Joe, thanks for mentioning the impact of these dynamics that we're talking about on food prices in the U.S. Let's look at low and middle income countries, particularly the ones that are relying on the Black Sea for their imports. How has their agriculture sector and how has their food security been affected? Well, yes, I, th I think you can break down what the impacts of this war has had on a variety of countries. The first, there are those countries who import directly from Ukraine and to a lesser extent, Russia. Obviously, for those countries, they have had to find other suppliers, particularly in the case of those who are importing from Ukraine. Ukraine has continued throughout the war, continued to export, but at much reduced volumes. Even with this new Black Sea initiative that uh, started last month, we still aren't up to nearly the volumes that we were seeing prior to the war. 
And by consequence, a country like Egypt, which may import a substantial amount of wheat and other grains from Ukraine, frankly, was scrambling to find supplies. The markets have worked extremely well. They have found other suppliers. The last notice I saw from the Egyptian government suggested they had almost six months worth of stocks available to draw upon. So that indicates to me that they're doing a good job of bringing in grain from others. But those are the direct impacts. On top of that, you have a price which is worldwide. So when prices go up for Egypt, they also go up for Yemen. They go up for countries in West Africa who may be importing wheat, Indonesia, elsewhere. And so this has been a global crisis in the sense of high prices and other things. Now, prices have come down a lot over the last two months or so, and we can get into those reasons in in a moment. But let me stop there and see if David has anything to add. Yes, I will just start by saying that even if prices have decreased a lot, they are still very high. So we are still talking about 50% more today than two years ago. So and that's a major concern, I mean, for poor people around the world today. And for the global food security, there is also one market that has not been impacted directly by the crisis. It's rice and price of rice have uh, remained low for various reasons. And that has contributed to not make it right now a major food crisis because rice is actually a staple for most of the poor people on earth. There's a a popular narrative in the media that the reason that we're seeing increased levels of food insecurity for countries that rely on the Black Sea for their imports is because of a global grain shortage, where what I've heard from the two of you is that when exports were disrupted, that caused challenges for food importing countries. They need to scramble to find alternative sources. There were probably delays in imports and things like this. So can you explain what is the reality? Is the reality that there is a shortage right now or simply that there are these disruptions for countries relying on the Black Sea? I think it's a terminology issue. Is there a shortage? Supplies are certainly less than they were. And so some would say, well, that's a shortage. Well, I would, I guess, look at shortages being more of a question of availability. Can you buy wheat? Is it even possible to buy wheat? If it's not, then that would be a real crisis. Wheat is available. It's just available at a higher price. And as David said, even with the fact that prices have come down over the last two months, they're still very high relative to two years ago. So countries that have limited GDP are spending larger shares of their resources on food imports. And so that is a question of affordability, much more so than availability per se. A concrete example is, for example, as I've said, Saudi Arabia need wheat. They have paid the price they need to be put on the table and they bring it from Brazil. No problem on that. And Brazil has become this year a big wheat exporters when normally they are not exporting wheat, but they are ready to pay. When the price is there, they are ready to export and they are going also to produce more this year. Yemen had to rely on potentially cheapest source. So because they didn't get the grain from the Black Sea, they turned to India. And unfortunately, after a couple of weeks, India has put an export ban. So in this case, you also see this type of restriction. And depending on how big you are, how attractive you are and how rich you are, you can navigate the current crisis pretty well. But yes, it's really a problem of access more than availability this year. This year, perhaps being the key term there. But I I want to turn back to you, Joe, and ask you to put on your hat, perhaps as former chief economist with USDA. Can the US make up for this shortfall? What are your thoughts there? Well, anytime you talk about a production shortfall in the world, just remember that it isn't something that's transformed necessarily overnight. It takes time because producers have to react to the higher prices by planting more or switching crops to address towards those crops that have higher prices. In the case of the US and in particularly the case of the global wheat market, where I think a lot of the tension is focused at least early on because Ukraine and Russia playing such a large role there. The U.S. is one of the major exporters in the world. One time, we were, the U.S. was the largest exporter. But over the last 
20 years, the Black Sea region has become the dominant exporter in the world markets. I mean, I keep pointing this out to people that 25 years ago, they were net importers of wheat. And now, again, 34, 35% of the global exports coming out of Russia and Ukraine. So can the U.S. supply? Well, remember that most of the wheat in the U.S. is planted in the fall and harvested in the spring. So already, farmers aren't going to be able to really respond to those high prices until, frankly, now. And now you do see plantings. There are indications that we will see more wheat planted this year. But if you look at what was planted last year, unfortunately, we also have a devastating drought in the Southern Plains. And so even though more area was planted last fall, we have seen diminished yields because of of this lingering drought. Now, the good news is that we also plant wheat in the spring, particularly in the Northern Plains. So there is a lot of wheat in that region that's produced as well. We did see more wheat being planted and more importantly, very good yields coming out of there this year. That's compared to last year where they they also had a very bad drought. So that will help, but it's insignificant. I think overall wheat exports are actually down this year, largely because of the smaller winter wheat crop. So it will take time. And we are seeing, as David mentioned, Southern Hemisphere has had very good crops. So we had a big response. We had very good crops out of Argentina and Australia this year. They are now planted now a crop that will be harvested at the end of the year. So that will all help in this grand scheme. But remember that we still have a war going on in Ukraine. We still have trouble getting grain out of Ukraine. And so this isn't something that, unlike a drought, where you you have countries worldwide planning more of that crop in response to high prices, here is hard because you're one of your major players has a broken leg, as it were. I mean, they're just not able to do as much. And until we get the situation normalized in that region, I think we're going to be looking at pretty tight agricultural markets. With producers in the United States and elsewhere also contending with high fertilizer prices, yes, which is exactly. which, which is you. limiting the potential to respond as well. It seems like you want to avoid what we saw happen last time, which is the last major global food price crisis, 2007, 2008, again in 2011, 2012, significant political attention to this issue, a significant amount of money devoted to this topic at that time. And then people just got tired of uh, tired of talking about it and figured that the problem was solved. Political attention waned just at the same time that global hunger started to increase again at the at the middle of the last decade. So, so yes, we want to avoid that happening again. We want to actually build on and sustain, as you said, this political attention 10 years would be great. Joe, you mentioned that Russia became a net exporter of wheat this century. In fact, they were a net importer at the beginning of the century, net exporter. Now in 2017, they became the world's top wheat exporter. Many countries relying on Russian imports. Russia likely stands to gain from shortfalls in exports from Ukraine right now. Does the world need Russia's exports of wheat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no question. Uh, Russia is a very large exporter in the world markets. I think the U.S. and others have been very clear on whatever sanctions we're imposing on the Russian economy to try to get the Russian government to rethink their political aims in Ukraine have not included food. And I think that's been very clear to exempt food and exempt fertilizer because of their outsized role in in food security. And I mean, I can speak a a lot about wheat and in particular because they are such a dominant player in the world wheat market. But fertilizer, if you look at at fertilizer imports in particularly Africa, south of the Sahara, Brazil, others, Russia is a major player for all three major fertilizer components. So 
And just to perhaps divert us for one moment to talk about how the fact that it's not just the prices and, and consumption of these products of bread products, of sunflower oil, et cetera, that are affected, but this is transferred on to consumption of other things. So for a family in a low and middle income country, when the price of bread increases, that means that they can afford less of the higher cost and more nutritious foods. And so their consumption shifts, they'll consume about the same amount of calories, but those calories are going to be less nutritious calories. And that's how we see an impact on nutrition status. That's one of the ways through which crises like this can affect generations of people. So again, just to make the point that it's not just consumption of bread, for example, that's affected because of the crisis. Yes, what people prioritize every day is to have this uh, feeling of satiety and to basically fill their stomach. And so they will prioritize caloric rich product. And when the price of rice or the price of wheat and bread goes up, you are going to try to maintain the consumption of this product and sacrifice other things. So first you sacrifice other food products. So as you said, dairy, uh, meat can be also uh, vegetables, but also you are going to cut on your health expenditure, your education expenditure, because when you are poor, you are going to spend between 50% and 70% of your income on food product. Mm. So, you know, when we say, oh, now food products double, you don't have any space mm -hmm. to absorb this. So you are going to have to make sacrifice, sacrifice about what the household is consuming, but unfortunately also about who within the household has access to this food. And so that's where, you know, gender imbalances take place. And as we have seen during the COVID-19, for instance, women in many cases were more impacted in terms of their own food security than men globally. And of course, now if you have a pregnant woman that is impacted, that's not only a life that is impacted, but the life of the kids and basically the whole life of the kid that can be impacted by the three months of high prices and food shortage at the household level. Exactly. Thanks for making that point. So three months of high prices can have impacts on the life of a child and that person's life. For yeah. And I think the other important thing to remember, and this gets back to who has been most affected by these shortages and other high prices, is that in those countries like North Africa, where wheat consumption is so high, a lot of those countries remember the lessons of Arab Spring. They've kept prices of bread and other things low with subsidies. When you get to countries in West Africa, it's more, I won't say a luxury item, but it is something that's largely, bread is largely found in urban areas. There, I suspect we do see, you know, what economists would call demand rationing. That is higher prices. They're going to purchase less bread. It's less critical there because there are local grains and other things to meet those caloric needs. But in those countries where per capita consumption of wheat is twice that of what we have in the U.S. or Europe, and a lot of those countries in the Middle East uh, fall in that category, either they are going to require a lot of subsidies on the parts of governments to keep those prices low. Or in the poorer countries, they will cut out other parts of their expenditures. And even when, like in Egypt, you know, government try to continue to subsidize food to maintain political stability, it still means that the government has to spend much more money to start to run deficit. So then either you have to cut other uh, public programs that are less visible, but can be very important for the well-being of the population, or you get more debt. So very clearly, getting more grains on the market, getting more fertilizer on the market and bringing those prices down is not a cure-all for the challenges that we're seeing right now. And really early on into the war, about a month and a half into the war, published your recommendations for policy responses to ag address the food security impacts of the war. I'd like to revisit those recommendations that you put out and ask what have 
policymakers domestically and globally done well and what still needs to be done. And I guess I can call our attention to outcomes of the G7 summit, for example, where the G7 announced a global alliance for food security. The United States has prioritized this very clearly, particularly in our humanitarian response, being a top donor to address the humanitarian needs because of this crisis. But what have policymakers done well and what still needs to be done? Yeah. So in thinking back on some of those recommendations, I think one of the first things that we said government should do is that they should provide humanitarian need where where needed. And I think that's something that you look at humanitarian organizations like the World Food Program, they have had chronic problems of trying to get enough funds to meet the crises they normally deal with. And remember, trying to assist people in Somalia has all of a sudden gotten a lot more expensive because of higher prices. So this is not just the the Yemens and other places of the world. These are also their normal, unfortunately, the populations that they oftentimes serve and, and help. And so it's been for them, I think countries really need to step forward. I think we have seen the U.S. and others put forward some effort, but I think a lot more needs to be done. Yes. And I would say, let's start with the fact that hunger is globally rising since 2015. So the size of the problem we have to deal with was just increasing every year. When the world has a goal, one of the SDGs or Sustainable Development Goal was to end hunger by 2030. So before this year, we were already have a kind of problem between where we would like to be and the current track. And of course, this war, the war is not creating the food price crisis. It's just making things worse. What he has actually done is to make hunger an important topic again. Because now it's a geopolitical one. And there's a global debate about who is creating hunger in Africa. Is it Russia with the invasion? Is it the Western country with the sanction? And that has elevated the narrative on hunger. Now, when we see what has been done, I would say first, in a number of countries, both middle-income and high-income countries, there was a number of programs trying to protect their farmers from the fertilizer price shock. And in the blog we have released, we say, just be careful about what you want to do. I mean... So that's the problem of some of the longer goals that have been sacrificed by, I would say, high and some middle-income countries. Now, during the first month of the crisis, and despite our warning, we have seen a number of export restrictions, including coming from middle-income countries. So Indonesia on palm oil, India putting a few of them, including on wheat. Now, this movement of export restriction has diminished, but it's still not perfect. And obviously, there is some seasonality, so they can come back. I want to turn back to what you mentioned as this narrative about who's responsible for the global food crisis right now. Is it Russia for its war in Ukraine? Is it the U.S. and Western countries for their sanctions on Russia? I just want to level set there that exports from Ukraine have been drastically diminished. And even though Russia's ag sector has been exempted from sanctions, there has been some impact, as we've talked about in the past, but not nearly the same level as we've seen from Ukraine. Yes. And first, I will say that, honestly, that the main cause of the global food security crisis this year is still climate events from last year, from this year in terms of magnitude, mm -hmm. it still dominate even the loss of production or the loss of export coming from Ukraine. Now, if we just look at the conflict, the invasion has triggered sanction. I mean that mm -hmm. Belarus is a slightly different story and there is a sub-story about the export of fertilizer coming from Belarus that predates the invasion. And for the fertilizer market, that's an important aspect. That's a potash situation. But we will not see sanction if there was not the invasion. So when we start, you know, to do attribution and causality, I mean, <laughs> at one point, we, we have to be rational. The other aspect is during the spring, Russian export went down 
also because on one hand, the conflict has created a high level of risk in the Black Sea and maritime transportation was disrupted for everyone. So actually, ships were not really eager to go to Russia or, of course, to Ukraine that was in the blockade. And it has impacted the own export of Russia, this high premium to go in the Black Sea. At the same time, also in March, April, Russia was have kind of drastic export restriction, export taxes yeah. on their own uh, wheat product. And that has very limited their own exports. And when they start to release it and also find new trade routes starting in June, a lot of wheat has left Russia. And yes, so that that's the situation. So obviously, Russia is able to export both fertilizer and grains in particular. Ukraine is not able to export. They tried to find alternative routes, but the alternative routes were not even 10% of what they should export normally. With the grain deal, they are now up to 25% potentially of what they should export. At the time of recording, we're coming up on UN General Assembly High Level Week. Of course, the G7 summit has happened. G20 summit is still upon us. WTO ministerial has just happened. But looking at future global political gatherings, starting with UNGA, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you like to see come out of these gatherings that would be most effective to, to address the crisis? Yeah, it's probably not fair. I mean, I, I obviously would love to see an end to the war. I think that would be the easy, I shouldn't say easy, it will take time for these markets to recover. But as long as the region is in conflict, I don't see a rapid response in, in the sense of Ukraine coming back to the position as being a major exporter. In fact, it could likely get worse just because they haven't been able to export as much grain. Remember that we're talking about three separate crops right now being affected. We have last year's crop that still is in storage that hasn't fully been exported. And some of it now is coming out, but there's still crops that were harvested last year, or at least planted last year, that haven't been marketed. You have the crops that are harvested this year that are awaiting export, and you have planning for next year. The fact that we haven't been able to harvest as much means that storage capacity is about exhausted. They have very limited places to put grain because it's not moving out of the country fast enough. And they have bought up a lot of temporary storage bags. So these are very, very long plastic bags that you fill with grain. And they, they're they a godsend for those who don't have storage because they do protect from the elements, but it's not a long run solution. And it comes at a cost. So all of this means that prices within the country itself are lower than they are normally relative to world market prices at a time when input prices like fertilizer and energy costs are extremely high. So the incentives for Ukraine farmers to plant this fall are frankly sharply diminished. And so if we see a lot less wheat planted in the fall, then that will have repercussions for next year's harvest as well, obviously. So those are things that at least a return to normalcy would be an important thing. I think a more realistic goal may be just to try to normalize the uh, exports coming out of the Black Sea. I think that's a very hard case because there is a war going on. So any errant rocket that hits port facility, I and mean, we have fighting how many kilometers away from these ports. And remember, even though we have this grain deal with the Ukraine ports, it's 50% of the capacity. But as David mentioned, the right now, they are still at only 25% or so of the typical volumes that we would see at this time of year. And this is really the prime time when wheat would be flowing out of Ukraine. But 
unfortunately, it's waiting all the corn that was harvested last winter to get moved out of the market. And so that's why when we look at the grain that's moved out of the grain deal since the reopening of the Black Sea ports, over half of that is corn right now. And it's largely crops that normally would have moved in February, March, and April now are finally getting out. So your response, Joe, was return to normalcy. So ending the war. David, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you like to see as outcomes of the UN General Assembly, but also other major global gatherings uh, upcoming? So that's the issue about a magical wand or being much more pragmatic and think what they can deliver. Because if UNGA cannot and the UN cannot deliver on peace, it's difficult to know what what they can do. So I, I would be maybe much more pragmatic in the sense that they can have a more medium and long-term vision about global food security. Because my main fear is people are going to first say, oh, prices are down, so there is no more problem. But they are done from a very high level to a high level. So that does not really matter if you are, you are poor. And also we are going to see fatigue from people hearing from even the war. So some people are going to forget about it. Then you are going to see the European countries that have to spend their international aid money on the refugees from Ukraine. And they will claim to some extent that they are spending on food security and humanitarians. But for Ukrainians in Europe, that is a population that is suffering a lot for sure. But this money will come from somewhere, and in many cases, it will not be from additional fund, but we are just going to see a domino effect. And meaning that, yes, it will mean less money for refugees in Lebanon, but also less investment potentially for food security uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where the core problems are. So what I would like really to see is long-term, high-level commitments on this global food security, because we are just going to jump from one crisis to another. One year is going to be a war. Next year is going to be a climate shock. After two years, people are going to forget and say no more problems and then back again. And so we really need to have these long-term commitments, not to say, oh, we have to spend 20 billion this year, because sometimes also that this excitement, but we need to commit money, including at the Congress in different places for five years, for 10 years, because we need to make the system more resilient. Yeah, so it seems like policymakers are weighing two things right now. One is the, the desire to decrease income to the Russian government, which they're using to fund this war, but also the desire to maintain food security in food importing countries. So it's a balancing act, really. It's a, it's a very big balancing act. It's not an easy argument to make to uh, someone in Ukraine who's looking at the West and other places to for those countries to use every means possible to try to end the war. And in particular, when they see part of their land occupied and other things. All this is, yeah, I think these are very difficult questions, but I think in my mind, no question because of the public good and the necessity of uh, having these uh, food supplies in world markets. I think there's plenty of things the, the rest of the world can do. We can think about rethinking biofuel policy. We can do a whole lot of things that bring more food onto the world. But in the meantime, I think very definitely we need we need wheat yeah, from I mean, the USA is the largest country on earth. It's a sparsely populated country. So in terms of arable land per, per capita, they have a lot. Mm -hmm. So today and tomorrow, the world of food security will need Russia. And in addition, even hurting the fertilizer or the agricultural sector in Russia is not going to put any pressure on Russia. I mean, the amount of money they make from wheat export is ridiculous compared to what they make from oil or, or natural yeah. gas, you know. If you add fertilizer and all food product, it's not even 7% of the value of exports 
annually before this year price hike on all prices. And last but not least, this is a type of question that people ask in the West or the global North. It's totally disconnected from the rest of the world. Okay, No one in Africa will say, oh, we are going to stop to buy wheat or anything from Russia. Same thing in Asia, even India, you know, <laughs> India this year is yeah. making <laughs> some very good deal with, with Russia that has to offer discount actually in some cases. So, I mean, geopolitically, and intellectually and even practically thinking that by limiting some export of Russia, oil is natural gas is a bit different, but we will make pressure on the Kremlin. That doesn't make any sense. And the main problem, it's really create a fracture with the rest of the world that don't even understand how this question can come in the mind of policymakers. In the world. It's a really a rich world mm -hmm. problem to say we are not going to buy wheat from Russia this year. That's what question that Germany can ask and should ask, but people in Egypt or in Senegal will never ask this question and are a bit insulted when even you bring the topic on the table. Joe Glauber, David Laborde, thanks so much for joining us for today's episode. We are about six and a half months into the war. I would love to invite both of you back, perhaps in a few months' time, to take another look at impacts of the war on global food security. But your analysis has been indispensable. So thank you again for joining us today and for everything that you're doing for all those who are watching this, this, this crisis. Thanks so much. Thanks. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.